lock the... I'm just joking. I'm not going to say lock the gates. Happy New Year. Happy 2020. The year of perfect vision. Here's the scene clearly. Also, since it's 2020, that means according to science and math, this podcast, which debuted in 2016, has now been going on for four fucking years. Can you believe it? 2016 to 2020. That is math. Uh, hello and welcome to another installment of Godween Evan, the interviews. Uh, I am your host this month. My name is Will Nunziata. And today's guest is the mythical musician and producer, Ben Vaughn. Uh, ben has been a successful musician since the uh, mid-80s. He's a legend in the Philadelphia music scene, and he's on our silly podcast because he produced two of Ween's uh, perhaps uh, best records, 12 Golden Country Greats and Aaron's uh, solo record, Marvelous Clouds. Um, he was uh, fucking phenomenal to talk to. Uh, and uh, spoiler alert, he's going to be back for another episode. Um, uh, but first, some Ween news. Uh, Ween has announced tour dates uh, on February 13th. They'll be in New Haven, Connecticut at the College Street Music Hall. February 14th and 15th, Terminal 5 in New York City. Uh, God, we never will be there. Uh, March 19th, 20 and 21st, Brooklyn Bowl, Las Vegas. Las Vegas. Uh, and then shows down south, we have April 2nd at the Revention Music Hall in Houston. April 3rd, Southside Ballroom in Dallas, Texas. And April 4th, the Criterion in Oklahoma City, Oklahoma. Um Tours, tour dates are being added every month. We're recording this like a month in advance, so make sure you check out ween.com uh, today to find out if they're playing uh, in your town, because uh, they probably are. Um, uh, an- another thing I want to talk about, in uh, the world of Ween podcasts, there is a great new Ween podcast. This is the competition. I'm going to plug them. Pod Ween Satan. I recommend it very highly. It's two funny dudes, uh, a guy who's been a fan for, uh, you know, 25, 30 years like me, and a new and a 24-year-old kid who just discovered the band like last year and is obsessed. It's like uh, Paul talking to Evan, but Evan's really, really into Ween the whole time. Uh, it's uh, a phenomenal podcast. They've been putting out episodes every week. Uh, they're going to go track by track. Uh, I, I recommend you listen to it. Uh, it's very enjoyable. Uh, I should also plug the Weencast, but I won't because they're dead to me. You heard that? Weencast, you're dead to me. Begun the podcast war has. Um, we are brought to you by uh, the Osiris Podcast Network. Uh, you can find Osiris at OsirisPod.com. And uh, David Crosby is one of the most enduring and colorful figures in rock music. Am I right? We want you to know about his new podcast. Yeah. David Crosby and his mustache have a podcast. It's called Freak Flag Flying, which features David in conversation with his friend and author, Steve Silberman. These new interviews cover everything from David's earliest earliest musical relationships with legendary peers like Bob Dylan, Jerry Garcia, Jefferson Airplane, and Steely Dan, and his years with Crosby, Stills, Nash, and Young. This limited series from Osiris launches on Monday, January 6th. Uh, I hope he has a whole episode talking about his sperm that went into Melissa Etheridge. Can't wait to hear that episode. David Crosby's sperm. Anyway, uh, today's guest, what can we say about... Mikey, what can we say about our guest today? He's the man. He is the man. Ben Vaughn. Um, if you don't know him, 
I mean, just go on YouTube. I like downloaded all of his stuff into my brain the uh, the past week. And like Ween kind of bends genres, Ben himself um, bends genres. He, 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 he plays jazzy stuff. He plays bluegrassy stuff. He plays rock and roll. He plays, you know, these beautiful instrumentals. He recorded an entire album called Rambler 65 in his car, which was a Ford Rambler, 1965 Ford Rambler. He recorded an entire album in his car. Like, that is something that you don't hear about every day. And and Ben uh, produced 12 Golden Country Greats. Uh, and he was, he shared with us, with me, uh, everything uh, about the writing and recording of that record, how he got involved. Uh, and it's a really, really enjoyable listen. And as I said before, we're going to have him back. So let's just get into it, Mikey. Let's just do it. Uh, here, check out this interview with Ben Vaughn. Ben Vaughn, how are you, sir? I'm doing well. I'm doing really, really well. Uh, ben, thank you so much for uh, taking the time to talk to me today. This is very, very cool, and this is uh, very cool for me because you produced one of my favorite records of all time, uh, 12 Golden Country Greats. And just having this opportunity to talk to you uh, is uh, a real pleasure. So thank you very, very much. Well, you're welcome. You're welcome. Uh, so uh, there's five of us that all do this podcast together, um, but today it's just me by myself. Um, and we told uh, one of our friends that we were interviewing you today, and he immediately sent over a copy of your record, Peace de Resistance, uh, for you to sign it. And we didn't have the heart to tell him that it wasn't a live interview, that it was going to be a phone interview. Well, you, so, well, well feel, feel free to forge my signature and hand it back to him. <laughs> <laughs> you got it. Would you mind just giving Carl a shout out real quick? We'll do his, we'll do like a an, an audio uh, signature. His name is Carl. Carl. Wow, that's an interesting name. Like C A L L. Oh no, C A R L. Oh, Carl. Carl. Yeah. Oh, my man, Carl. Uh, well, thanks for buying the record. I'm assuming you bought it. And uh, oh yeah. <laughs> and if you did. Um, I'm signing it with my my mind right now. <laughs> Thank you, brother. You just made you just made Carl very happy. Um, so, first things first. Uh, where are you from? I'm from uh, Camden, New Jersey. Um, I'm actually from a town right next to Camden, New Jersey, uh, called Mount Ephraim, and Camden is right across the river from Philadelphia. Right, so you're part of that whole. I know in in my research, I found that you were pretty much uh, like in the you know early to mid '80s, uh, basically a Philly legend, uh, is what I've gathered. Is that true? Am I am I overselling or am I underselling? I still am a Philly legend. What are you saying? <laughs> <laughs> what are you saying over there? No, uh, I uh, that's where I got my start, and that's where my first uh, fan base. Started just like Ween, you know, only only a little further north up in New Hope, Pennsylvania, um, and Philly was probably the first real city that embraced them as well. Uh, that's, yeah, that's how I, I know those guys because we're local, local dudes. Right. You know? So, and so you were doing shows, and I'm assuming all of a sudden now there's these two teenagers that start coming around doing shows. Is that how it works? Is that how you first hear of Ween? Well, I. 
you know, I've known them, you know, so you know how you know people for so long you can't even remember how you met them, you know? Yeah, totally. Uh, it's kind of how it is with those guys, but I'm pretty sure I met Mickey when he was a teenager before Ween. Um, he was hanging around WTSR, which was the Trenton College radio station. Mm-hmm. And there was a guy who had a show there named Jeff Fjorzik, who has gone on to do some interesting things. He directed that uh, Daniel Johnston uh, documentary. Oh, that's like the best. We were just talking about that yesterday. Yeah. Well, he's, he had a radio show. Uh, he went by the name Jeff F. And he had a radio show. And Mickey used to hang out there. I don't know if you are you using real names on this podcast? Uh, we, yeah, we we interchange them all the time. Okay, yeah. Uh, so so you're but audience, I know who you're talking about. Your audience knows knows that that's Dean Ween, correct? Yeah. Oh oh yeah. The, the people that are listening to this are diehard, ridiculous Ween fans. They know more about the band than perhaps the band does. Well, they, they should seek psychiatric help. I think. <laughs> yeah, I agree. <laughs> uh, and so should I. Uh, but anyway. Um, yeah, he used to hang around, and um, I'm pretty sure I met Mickey when he was probably like 15 or something. Um, he had a, he's he was putting out these cassette compilations. He started a label called Bird O Prey Records, mm-hmm. and he was doing these cassette compilations. And he used one of my songs without my permission, and that's how I believe I met him first. I, and I I was impressed that he just went ahead and did it, <laughs> didn't even ask. <laughs> Such a punk rock move, you know? (laughs) Yeah. uh, And then later on, I mean, they would come, I would play at City Gardens in Trenton, and uh, Mickey would come out. I think he went to every show that was there, which means, you know, he would see me as well. Right. So so I knew those guys. I knew them as these crazy kids, you know? And uh, at one point, I remember... It was either Mickey or someone else gave me a tape of him and Aaron, and it was just the two of them inhaling helium and laughing. Yeah. <laughs> and that was uh, my first exposure to their their music, you know. <laughs> so, uh, you know, obviously, Ween, you know, their geniuses, their unbelievable I mean what do you do what, what do you do when you're when you're handed this tape and you're like listening to it in your car and it's just these kids you know inhaling helium do you do you write them off immediately or do you like or you like all right I'm interested like uh, where no, is, I, like, I, I kind of did write them off because you know I'm, I'm real big on songs you know and if somebody yeah. hands me a tape if I don't hear a song there I'm not interested and obviously there wasn't a song there and they were I figured they were just weird you know and funny, and they would... And you're right. Yeah, and that they might outgrow it or whatever. But it wasn't until I saw them open for um, Fugazi. At, you were at that show? I was at that show. and Oh, boy. I went there to see Fugazi. And out on the stage comes two guys with a tape deck. <laughs> and they start doing their thing, which was not what the audience wanted. And it was it was one of the most unbelievable shows I've ever seen in my life because the audience absolutely hated them, and they started throwing stuff at them. Yeah, like I remember hearing stories of uh, there was lots of gum being thrown, and uh, I think they were also high on mushrooms for the entire show, and they were just welcoming the pain. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. And, and Mickey was saying, you know, 
uh, wow, thanks a lot. We, uh, if you love that one, you're really going to love this next song. You know, and then, <laughs> yeah. and then you know, a shoe would come flying up there or something. You know, and, and it was uh, it was amazing. But they dug in deeper. You know, it was uh, yeah. at one point Aaron sat cross-legged on the floor, and they did that Lita Ford ballad. You know, whatever was if, if if I close my eyes forever or something. Yeah, like that. something like that. Yeah, and it, and that made things even worse. So they just of course. <laughs> they welcomed it and they responded to it in a way that really impressed me. It was it was like a, it was kind of a life changing experience. You know, those guys are like fifteen years younger than me, and I'm watching oh, these really yeah, and I'm watching these guys and I'm like, wow, I just learned a whole new thing watching the and and the, and the songs are great you know the songs are really great they were doing what became the first album or it might have already mm-hmm. been out it might have already been out that first yeah album. it's all around the same time yeah 90 like 89 90 right exactly and um i was just completely blown away and i and i was talking to the owner of the club i said who are those guys and he said you know them and I go, no, I don't think I do. And he goes, no, you definitely know those guys. That's Mickey and Aaron, you know. And and I was like, wow. Yeah. Wow, they really developed into something incredible. It's, that's like also the the amazing thing about that band is like if you were to just take snapshots of them like every five years, like you see just an insane amount of growth and like and skills. Like you saw them when they were 15 and, you know, you know sucking in helium – and then they're performing like a full-on punk show four or five years later. And then you go ahead and produce them like 10 years after that. And, you know, just the the, the caliber, like just how different. Yeah, uh, uh, but I would say they were, op- records are. they were opening for a full-on punk show. They were not punk. Right. The- but what would, you, what would you consider them genre, like genre-wise then? It's uh, always... I would say, uh, you know, uh, psilocybin hippie. Uh, but something, but met heavy metal, like there was this kind of David Lee Roth thing going on. I don't know, you know, it's, it's yeah. you know, that th- they're so amazing and they're channeling what they do. So even talking to those guys and saying, Hey man, where did you get that riff? It's a, it's a lost cause because they're, they're, they're channeling on such a deep level. It's just coming through them. Right. You know, the music is coming through them. Everything they've ever heard, whether it's Prince or Madonna or, country music or earth, wind and fire, or, I mean, and, and it's sometimes within one song, those things come out, but the guitar riffs and the vocals and the songwriting ability is the thing that blew me away. I mean, these, these songs really have choruses and they really have like stuff, yeah. you, stuff you can really hang your hat on. And you hear a lot of those songs, you only need to hear them once and they're stuck in your head forever. And that's not true. Mm-hmm. That's really not true of a lot of, a lot of bands. Yeah, yeah. There, there's something. There was something special early, and like you got to see glimpses of it. Even you know, even on those early records, which you know some people would find uh, like hard to listen to. It's like there are these gems in there. It's like, oh, this is a band that has it. This is a band that you know will someday uh, uh, make it in some way. It's like they 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 have the skills. Oh, definitely, definitely. Um. So, how long did you uh, stay in Philly for? Uh, I lived there until 1995, and then I moved out west. Oh, the dream! And uh, so, and I saw uh, going through your bio. I saw that you—is that when you put out your the instrumental record? Yeah, that was uh, that would have been 1995. Yeah, the um, I put an instrumental 
album out and came out here to L.A. thinking I would get some work on some cool independent movies doing soundtrack work. That's what I was interested in. And I didn't expect to make any money, but I thought I'd have an interesting life, you know. Mm-hmm. And uh, But Pulp Fiction broke right around that time, and then all of a sudden everybody wanted the guitar sound that I had. And uh, I got immediate work. Yeah, it's like, kind of like that surf guitar, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I dedicated, you know, <laughs> I was dedicated to surf guitar since I first started playing guitar, and it was like learning how to speak Latin. No one wanted it, mm. you know. There was no need, there was no use for it, but I did, you know, I was dedicated to that style. But nobody was buying it, okay. and, and then all of a sudden, one movie becomes a hit, and everybody wants that sound. And I had just moved here to L.A. when that all happened. And, right, and I saw you produced, like, the Swingers soundtrack, right? Yeah, I worked on that. I produced uh, Big Bad Voodoo Daddy, yeah. And so all, all of the things that I was dedicated to musically for purely musical reasons became economically uh, viable at, at a certain point and I landed in LA at exactly the right time yeah man right time right place yep uh, congrats that's fucking awesome it was <laughs> I'm not gonna so, lie I'm not gonna lie it was nice to get work and it was nice to be appreciated you know yeah, and it's nice to get paid and like be be comfortable to so you can then create more. It's like it's the dream, and you know, and not everybody gets that. That's true. That's true. Um, so you leave Philly. Uh, I'm assuming Ween is on your radar uh, in some way. Um, how did? What was the moment? Or do you? Was there a moment when uh, you and the guys decided to get together and? Make a country record. How like how does that happen? Well, I I got to know Ween like after I saw them that first time, um, I was reintroduced to them and we became friends. Uh, Mickey and I in particular, and uh, you know Aaron's Aaron's a, an elusive guy, and mm-hmm. uh, I'm friends with him, but he's he is like really an artist. He's like the the, the real thing, you know, which means he's wispy, you know. Yeah, and. Uh, and he's elusive. And Mickey's like the meat and potatoes guy who likes to hang out, you know? Right. And so I got to be friends with Mickey, and we were recording some stuff together and, and you know, goofing around, um, you know, going to record stores together and things like that. And I moved to California. And uh, during that time, I was going down to Nashville and co-writing with a lot of uh, Music Row songwriters. Mm-hmm. My publisher... Um, thought I would be a good fit for Nashville, so I went down there, and I was writing with Rodney Corral and a few other people like that, and uh, had, you know, done a lot of session work down there, and hung out in sessions, and wrote songs, and Mickey knew all about that. He knew that I was down there doing that, and he loves country music, absolutely love, both of them do, and uh, they were impressed by that, like, wow, you're down there, that's so cool. And so I moved to L.A. I'm doing TV work, TV shows, and I get a call from Mickey saying, we want to record a country album. And I said, which country? Because yeah. <laughs> with them... It, All of them. Cause, yeah. Exactly. With them, it could be <laughs> Afghanistan. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. 
and they and they and they, they probably know all those scales and know how to make music that sounds authentic from that country. <laughs> you know, so yeah, <laughs> you know they're really capable of anything. And and he goes, no country music, you know. And so we had to talk about it. And uh, I flew back, and we got together with Aaron, and we hung out, and they played me some songs. And I said, the only way to do this is to do it with the A-list guys from the past. And they're just shy of retiring from the union and collecting their pensions. But we can get them oh my now. God. We can get them now. We can get Pig Robbins. And if, if you Google these names and look at the hit records that these guys played on. Oh, like, it's like every record. Well, say like Buddy Harmon on drums, you know, Bye Bye Love, uh, you know, Crazy by Patsy Cline, he's Pretty Woman by uh, Roy Orbison, Little Sister by Elvis. I mean, that's the drummer, right? <laughs> yeah. And, and Pig Robbins. And they're also, these guys are all over the Dylan records, you know, that he cut down there. I mean, just the Jordanaires are in the background of, you know, Elvis, you know, when he's shaking his hips. It's yeah. Like you see Elvis's face and the Jordanaires. Yeah. And that, like, that's what you see. Yeah, and these guys were right at the end of being still being, you know, uh, working um, players and vital, you know? Yeah, it's like the, the wine couldn't be finer. Right, exactly. And they were yeah. really seriously just getting ready to retire. <clears throat> and, like, now they are all retired or no longer living, you know? Right. And they loved that idea. So I, you know, I started going through the the union, uh, the local union in Nashville and seeing who was available and getting numbers and calling them directly and um, started gathering all those guys up. But the, but the main thing was, is I said, I said to those, to Ween, I said, this has got to be one of those records where I'm the kind of producer that tells you, you can't play on your own record. Yeah. <laughs> and, and their reaction was, wow. Dude, we always wanted somebody to do that to us. <laughs> yeah, it's so great. It's like you're coming from the outside and you're just gonna you're gonna work them like studio musicians. Yeah, I'm gonna like you guys are talented kids and everything, but you know, these guys really know how to play. Just sit in front of the microphone. <laughs> when I point to you, just sing, you know. <laughs> and it was Do you uh, do you remember like what the demos were at the time? Like what and did any songs stand out? They're like, ooh, that's the one. The demos were amazing. Um, uh, I remember uh, holding you. I'm holding you. Was mm -hmm. Aaron recorded that vocal on the beach of New of a New Jersey town in the winter, like in his underwear or something, and was freezing. And it's the weirdest sounding thing. <laughs> and uh, that, that makes total sense uh, because also at the same time, and you're probably aware of this. They were also writing and demoing and recording The Mollusk, uh, which you know, perhaps is their uh, masterpiece. I don't know. It's my favorite record. Um, it, but uh, well, they, like that I was mean, happening. The, those guys were writing and recording constantly. I mean, right. it was constant. And their albums are not really chronologically you know, in order a lot of the times because they recorded so many things they wouldn't remember when they recorded it. Right. <laughs> and the greatest thing about Ween, I remember, you know, working with Mickey, you know, with the, um, the four-track cassette deck that, that uh, they originally used, they were messing with the tape speed all the time, constantly. 
to the point where when they would start recording a song, the tape speed wouldn't even be in the center. It would be somewhere off. <laughs> so you could never tell what key anything was in. And when it was time for them to do overdubs, they had switched the speed so many times. <laughs> they couldn't figure out what key the song was in. <laughs> it was just an amazing an amazing thing to witness. Yeah, I'm, I'm, assuming, I'm assuming that switch has been real worn on that machine. Yeah, it, it was her thing, you know. And um, that's what made their record so interesting is you could never tell at what tape speed the voice or the instruments were recorded with. Yeah. You, you, there's no way of knowing. And the Beatles did that too, but Ween took it to like a crazy extreme. In some ways it reminded me of that um, Mothers of Invention album, uh, We're Only In It For The Money. Mm. which is their third album. All the voices are sped up and weird, and I'm pretty sure Aaron was a big fan of that record. And had yeah, a- I remember first hearing it, and, like, and like uh, I was like, oh, you know, I'm a, I'm a you know, teenager, 14, 15 years old, and I'm like, is this what drugs are? Is, is, this, is this the sound of drugs? <laughs> and, like, being so confused by, like, how all of a sudden it'd be really high-pitched and then really low and... Having no understanding of how it happened, all I would like, I was like, I need to dive deeper to figure this out. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. But when they, you know, so the demos for the country album had, you know, had a bunch of that stuff going on, as you can guess. And uh, I really liked the songs, you know. Um, I really liked the songs. So I said, let's book time. So I used my connections in Nashville. Uh, Clay Bradley was at BMI. And right, that's Bradley's. That's the guy who runs Bradley's Barn. Well, he's the nephew of one of them. I don't know it, the Bradley family. Amazing family, because um, Owen Bradley, record producer, um, you know, he produced Patsy Cline and you know, huge hits. And he had, he owned the studio of Bradley's Barn. And then there was Clay Bradley, and his brother Harold Bradley was a session guitar player on a zillion records as well. And then Clay was a nephew or son of one of these guys, and he was at BMI. So I called him, and he helped me uh, put together, helped me um, you know, in, interface with the union down there and also book the time at the studio and get everybody on board with this. And the way I pitched it, because Ween is so weird, and, the Na- mm-hmm. and Nashville can be conservative, or at least that's the reputation anyway, you know, but I wanted to be careful. Because uh, a lot of right. these people go to church, you know, and right. uh, we got a song called "Piss Up a Rope" that is um, a little offensive, <laughs> <laughs> perhaps. Yeah, uh, you know, and uh, Mister Richard Smoker ain't too far behind, yeah. you know. So yeah, I was gonna say once once you get "Piss Up a Rope" by them, you have Mister Richard Smoker coming in from behind. Yeah, so yeah. Uh, you know, I, I basically just to kind of keep things. Uh, friendly, I said, I, you know, I have a brother act I want to bring down. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I thought, well, f- you know, family, who doesn't love family, right? <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so, uh, but then when I spoke to each player, I, I did ask him, I said, look, some of this material is blue and has some blue, some blue lyrics, and is that something that would offend you? And one guy flat out said, yeah. I'm a deacon at my church, and I can't do this. I said, "Okay, that's cool." Yeah, I can't. I, I can't hear someone say, "I'm a poopy poker." Yeah, too offensive. Yeah, 
And it, it gets even worse in that song. <laughs> that's like one. That's one. That's one of the euphemisms in that song. And and one guy we really wanted. Mickey and I both were really enamored of this guy, Danny Davis. Uh, he was an arranger and producer for RCA Records, and he made these, um, the Danny Davis brass records, and they were um, kind of like a Nashville version of Herb Alpert and the Tijuana Brass. Mm-hmm. Like really great pop, really bright, really square, um, you know, renderings of like Wabash Cannonball or, you know, country hits. And we really wanted him to do some horn charts. And he asked me to send him some the the two worst songs, you know, <laughs> lyrically. And he never called me back. <laughs> <laughs> he, 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 he didn't even say no. He just, uh, that was it. <laughs> I, Ghosted you. I, I tried calling him a couple of times, and I, it kept going straight to his voicemail. You know, I can, I can take a hint, you know. So, Ben, how does this work with, with, like, when you're a producer and, you know, they're on Electra at this point, and does Electra have to sign off on you? Do they need to, like... Is it hands-off? Do you even have to talk to anyone from Electra? Like, how does that part of the business work? Well, in this case, we did it without Electra knowing. Um, secret record. Yeah, it was a secret record that they used their own money to finance. And then it's, it, was, it, it was a brilliant move, too, because I can't imagine having to listen to anyone weigh in on, on what they think this record could could be other right. other than what it was, you know, <clears throat> and uh, we you know we had a vision for it, and um, you know Mickey and Aaron were really uh, you know they're really pure artists they're really pure creative people, and they they really only want to do what they want to do, and they said we're just not going to tell the label we're gonna we're gonna record this and we're gonna deliver it and tell them this is our new album. And I was like, okay. Well, that's great. Cool. That's great. Works for me. I mean, that's better. Yeah. You know, yeah. Uh, so let's, let's make this thing. So we went in and did it. And I wasn't freedom. And I would have loved to wow. have, to have been at that meeting at Electra when they walk in and there's a table full of, you know, A&R guys and senior, senior directors of product development sitting around this table, you know, high atop this, gleaming plexiglass building <laughs> in midtown Manhattan and, and they throw a cassette on the middle of the table and say, here's our newest album, we're going country. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I yeah, really the, wish 19, I had been there. 1996, I re- we're going country. Exactly, I really wish I had been there for that because that, that yeah. that's the kind of, wow, I mean, that's legend, you know. <laughs> I mean, it's just like, talk about a completely different music business then as opposed to now. That you know, I guess they they had success off Pure Guava, and then they made Chocolate and Cheese, and it sounded big, and they they produced a bunch of videos, and they you know I'm assuming they made some change, and then they were able to just you know have the foresight to be like, now's the time to strike. Let's make this record, uh, and like I mean it's it's like a fucking perfect record. What was the working title of the record? Was it always? Twelve Golden Country Greats. Oh no, no, there was no working title. I, I called it Ween Country. I told them they should have a photo of a barn 
uh, with somebody graffitied Ween Country on the side, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, but no, no, there um, there was no title. We were just making the Ween Country album. I guess is what we were calling it, you know. Because um, there there is there is a rumor uh, that originally the record was. Do you remember how many songs in total were recorded by uh, you know all the players down there? Well, as far as the title, as far as I know, that was just a random thing, like 12. Yeah, that sounds good. You know, I, I, <laughs> I, don't, think, I, don't, I don't think there's really much behind it other than, than that. Um, trying to remember how many songs we cut. Um, we cut So Long Jerry, which t- ended up somewhere else. Yeah, that was on, I think, the Piss of a Rope single? Yeah, because Garcia, Garcia died uh, right about a month or two before we cut that record. Uh, and that's why they, you know, wrote that song, which is an amazing. There were, song. There were a couple other. It's gone. It's an amazing song because it really sounds like a, a, a Grateful Dead song from Europe '72. It really does. Oh, it really does. Yeah, and and, it, the, and those guitars cry in that song. Yeah, and just the chord changes, and it's kind of interesting that they were able to nail that particular thing that the Dead do that ballad style that they did at that particular time. Um, I was really impressed with that song, but I can't remember why it didn't make it onto the final record, um, the final. Because it's not a long record. It's like, I think it's, the whole record's like 32 minutes or about there. Ten songs, right? I think. Yeah, ten songs. Thus, thus yeah. the title, 12 Golden Country Greats. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah the, well, the rumor was it's like, it's not the amount of tracks, it's the amount of amazing players that are on the record. These are 12 country greats. Wow. That are playing along with Ween. So that's that's how it's been spun over the years. But I think they also recorded uh, I Got No Dark Side. Oh, around yeah. This time. We Sweet. Did. Yeah, we did. I forgot about that. Maybe Sweet Texas Fire. No, no. I know that was... That's one of their four-track recordings, Sweet Texas okay. Fire. But yeah, we did... Um, you're right. Um, I Ain't Got No Dark Side. And um, that one... And then... I don't know. Did that ever come out? I, it's hard for me to keep track. It, yeah, it came, it came. It's it's also hard for me to tell what came out officially versus what just you know got leaked. I mean, I have like two versions of it. I have I think I have a demo version and like a cleaner studio version. I remember the demo being great. Um, yeah, just a lot of screaming and yelling in it and stuff. Uh, <laughs> I, I love. I just love those guys. What can I say? I mean, every every you know every yeah. every song makes my kind of stops in my mind and I start replaying it in my head, you know, and I just, uh, and then around, around the same time there was, uh, I think I'll miss you, which ended up on like the beautiful girls soundtrack. It sounds like it should be off this record, but I don't know. Do you remember that song? I do not know. That doesn't ring a bell. Yeah, so that, that probably wasn't there. I mean, I think they definitely started adding that, uh, that slide guitar to the repertoire for the next few years after this record came out. Yeah, that sounds right. Um, yeah, like, yeah, Russ, uh, what's his name? Russ Hicks. Russ Hicks. Yeah, is he the pedal. Yeah, he, yeah, he pedal played pedal steel right? on the country album. I know that much. Yeah. Yeah, I think he might have. He might have popped in and played with them later. Um, so let's kind of go uh, through this record and any stories that you have. Uh, you know, I'm going to eat it up. All of our fans are going to eat it up. Uh, and let's just, you know. Let's take a shot. Tell me what you remember about uh, these tracks. So let's start with the record opener, I'm Holding You. <laughs> uh, 
that is not what I wanted to be the um, the opening track. Uh, I thought they should start with another. It's the weirdest opener. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, I you know, to me, Japanese Cowboy was the obvious first song. You know, and, <laughs> yeah, because uh, it sounded like a hit single to me, and uh, I I lost out. Um, the first sequence, the sequence I made had that up front, and they were like, "Cool, dude, thanks." And then they did whatever that whatever the <laughs> hell they wanted to do, which was start with a ballad. But it is such a beautiful vocal by Aaron. Um, I, it is such a beautiful, in tune, well, uh, well, you know, just uh, his phrasing and the Jordan Airs. Um, the way, the way, you know, and with the Jordanaires, the way I figured with, with all these players, they have been on a million hit records, and there's a reason why people hire them. They come up with the licks, and they come up with the arrangements that make these songs hits. Right. So I decided I'm going to have to take the same approach, you know. So we would play the demo, and Charlie McCoy would write out the number system. That's what they use in Nashville. They don't write down the chords because... A lot of times, after a take or two, the singer will say, let's try it in B-flat instead, and then everybody would have to cross out everything, you know? Right, if, right, right. If all you write out is numbers, then you just transpose it in your mind. And, you know, so you go from a 1 to a 4 to a 1, a 6 minor to a 5 to a 1. Um, and then if the... So interesting. Yeah, so if you change the key, you're still doing 1 to 5 to 1, you know, 6 minor. You're still doing the same sequence of right. chords. And... Um, so Charlie McCoy and the Jordanaires actually invented the Nashville system of numbers, the Nashville number system. And we were working with the guys who invented it, which is a pretty incredible thing to be in the same room with. Yeah. So there's Charlie McCoy and the Jordanaires in the same room charting out a song by Ween. And I'm standing there going, wow, I can't believe this is happening. <laughs> this, yeah. this, this. And, and, and meanwhile, the lyrics, you know, about the orb and, uh, you know, uh, uh, the um, evil and, uh, you know, like it's a ballad, but the words are very strange, you know. Oh, yeah, there's some, yeah, yeah, there's some odd uh, lyric choices in that song. But it works. It all works. It does. It does in, in a beautiful way. And I remember... After we recorded it and after the Jordanaires uh, did their part, and, and that's Pig Robbins on piano. When, I think in the second verse, he starts doing a little beautiful little chimey piano stuff. Mm -hmm. And I remember Aaron turned to me and said, it feels like a Christmas record. <laughs> and I go, yeah, it does. Why is that? And then he goes, and we looked at each other and go, who knows? <laughs> but it does. <laughs> <laughs> it sounds like a Christmas record. It's a beautiful comforting piece of music you know and the, the lyrics are very strange on that yeah fumes from the grid that rid my lobe of oxygen there you go that's exactly what i'm talking about <laughs> yeah that's it's like already <laughs> merry christmas <laughs> okay terrific yeah merry christmas everyone yeah um, and uh no, but you know we laid that down, and um, pete wade is the guitar player on the record and that guitar solo he does on there is gorgeous you know uh, I love it. And so. some things that I've I've read, and let's just verify that this is true. So all the union guys, all the local players, they're coming into the studio with you during the day. They work like nine to five. They get like a lunch break. It's a it's like a sweet union job. And then 
the boys would come in at night after they left and then they'd record the vocals? Is that how the process worked? Not at all. Oh, what? How did, how did, how did it work? The vocals were cut live with the band. Oh. Everybody's in the same room. Aaron's in the vocal booth, or in Mickey's case, I think he sings two songs on there. Uh, he's in a vocal booth. No, no, we're, everything was, that was a very quick, re- we cut the whole record in three days. Oh, so so everyone's in the room to get, see, I don't know where, see, there's so much false information about Ween out there that I read that that's the way it worked. The, guy, the guys worked nine to five, and then Ween would be there all night recording vocals. No, 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 no. Um, no, um, not at all. All right. Well, I'm glad Internet stopped publishing that awful rumor. Yeah. and oh, uh, you, heard it, you heard it here. And the great thing about, you know, cutting that way, I mean, these guys were able to cut, like, three songs in three hours. You know, these guys are incredible musicians, you know. I think it would take an hour and a half to cut each song, basically. Oh, that's great. And what was great about it is that, you know, me and Mickey and Aaron could go down to Lower Broadway and, and drink. At night, <laughs> because we had, to, we, we had the night off. <laughs> oh my God, that's great! So we would go to Tootsie's. The, we would go to Tootsie's Orchid Lounge at night and record during the day. And um, yeah, they would come in like I don't know, ten a.m. Um, and set up. And the way the way uh, sessions go is you you hire these guys for a three hour block, and in those, in those three hours, it's up to the producer to to get what you want out of those three hours. And uh, traditionally in Nashville, you would get two songs in those three hours. Uh, that's how those guys were used to working. That's why they have a lot of trouble remembering what records they played on. Right. Because they would play on a like, a week. They would do like Patsy Cline in the morning and then do like Charlie Pride in the afternoon. And then if they wanted to do a third session, uh, you know, they would, they would be doing a Roger Miller track or something, you know. Uh, they played on, and all of a sudden, that that weirdo Leonard Cohen comes to town, and let's record a couple couple tracks with him. Yeah, yes. <laughs> Charlie yeah. Charlie McCoy uh, gave, has some pretty good Leonard Cohen stories, actually, because <laughs> he played on uh, he, yeah he played on that stuff. But yeah, Charlie, yeah, Aaron Aaron told a little bit about it on uh, the Mark Marin podcast that uh, of uh, of Leonard Cohen whipping himself as he's singing. Yeah. Yeah, as I recall, he had another guy with him who whipped him. But yeah, it's oh great, and there was like even better a briefcase with a whip in it. Um, yeah, <laughs> hot. Good job, Leonard Cohen. Yes. Um, all right, so uh, hey, it must have worked. The next track it, it must have worked. I mean, Leonard Cohen was a genius, you know. So <laughs> you damn right it worked. Whatever works. Yeah. Um, the uh, the other what was the other rumor I heard about this record? Uh, and I just want to. All right, it'll come to me. It'll come to me in a second. Um, so, next track on the record is Japanese Cowboy. Well, getting back to that for a second is probably a, the the rumor probably exists because um, there might be a belief out there that we hid the lyrics from the musicians. Mm. Not true at all. Um, you know, I I I ran these songs by these guys. I everyone I called, I I told them that the lyrics were, you know, going to be shocking and. And there's going to be profanity. And I told him up front because I wanted to have an honest session. I wanted everyone to, mm. I wanted it to be a real thing, you know. And where everybody's facing each other and looking at each other and responding to each other in the studio. And so um, they, they, were, they, they, were, they were up for it. You know, Pig Robbins, 
um, I called him, and uh, now Pig Robbins, if you, if you look him up, you're not going to believe the amount of things he's played on. And he's, he's blind, so he has to be led into the studio, you know. Get out he, of town. And he walks in, and, he, and, he, and he's introduced to me, and the and he, first thing he says, he goes, so here we got some country motherfuckers in here. <laughs> you're damn right we do Hargis so I was like I think he's going to be okay with this <laughs> yeah but yeah they uh, we, we recorded all together at the same time so you can dispel that rumor okay great and the, uh, the other rumor was that Dean and Gene uh, did very little playing of any instruments on this record that, that's true I think there was may- maybe a guitar solo or two guitar tracks I think Mick, was Mick, about it uh, Mickey plays lead guitar on I Don't Want to Leave You on the Farm. And Aaron plays lead guitar on Fluffy. And that's the only time they ever picked up a guitar. Oh, that's great. They're, they're the singers. Uh, and the band is the band. That is, what a good idea, Ben. Thank, good work. Thank you. Thank you. Well, I mean, they, they were, you know, also into it. So it wasn't yeah. entirely my concept. But, I, I you know, I helped... Uh, I guess, you know, set up a, an environment where it could happen. And uh, I believed in it, that's for sure, you know. <laughs> All right. Uh, so, uh, Japanese Cowboy. Um, I think you did an interview with uh, a tasteofcountry.com, and I borrowed heavily uh, from that interview. And you said, uh, we don't have a single on this record. And the boys went to a hotel and wrote this song and brought it to you the next day. Is that true? That's definitely true. Yeah. Um, See, the thing with Ween, the line between homage and parody is always, mm. is, is always blurry and always will be, you know? And I have that tendency as well. And in, in that sense, I was probably the perfect guy for them to ask to do this record at least. Um, I, I, I've, I'm, that same, I've, I'm that same way when it comes to music. So as a producer... The two things that I wanted to inflict on them was they're not going to play on their own record. They're just singing. And the other is, at some point, I'm going to say, hey, guys, great record, but I don't hear a single. <laughs> <You know? Right. laughs> Go write a single. So I was half kidding and half serious. And, you know, I figured if they come back with a new song, this is, you know, how could that be bad, right? Right. And Ween being Ween, they, they got into it, and they wrote it at breakfast at Shoney's. They were staying at Shoney's, which was a, a motel and a restaurant in Nashville. And breakfast at Shoney's, two ninety-nine. They took the hotel stationery to the restaurant and sat down there, breakfast at Shoney's, and, and they got the two ninety-nine special, you know. And so it's almost like autobiographical. <laughs> you know, it's like, what do you want to write about? I don't know. Breakfast at Shoney's, you know. It was like... And they, they brought it in, and um, I loved it right away. And I'm thinking, boy, it sounds familiar, though. That melody sounds familiar. Yeah. sure sounds familiar. Well, you know, I, I guess maybe it's just one of those songs, you know, so we cut it. Yeah. You know, it wasn't until, like, about a year later that I realized it was uh, Chariots of Fire by Van yeah. Jealous. <laughs> yeah. Van Jealous has been cashing them checks ever since. Yeah. But the great thing about that song is that lick, the harmonica and dobro lick, that is just so good. Um, and that's Charlie McCoy. Wait, what is, what is, what is the dobro? 
Dobro is it's like a slide guitar that you, uh, you know, it's used in bluegrass. Um, it has a resonator on it. It's shaped like a guitar, six strings, uh-huh. uh, open tuning, usually an open G tuning. And, or, op- yeah, I guess it's an open G. And um, it has a pie plate resonator on it. And you play it facing up. Like you put it around your neck, but but it's facing up like like a table in front of you. And you. Oh, I yeah, I know, I know what you're talking about. It's like it's like a rectangle. Uh, no. Right. Or is that? Oh, what am I thinking? All right. I'm not sure what you're thinking. I of, took a sh- I took a shot. I took a shot. Yeah, but um, Pete Wade, um, not only a great guitar player, but really great dobro player. And he and Charlie McCoy came up with that lick, and it's just so classic to have the harmonica and dobro. You know, it's just just. Uh, you know, it's why those guys are those guys, you know? Right. They came up with that in probably one minute it took them. And we cut it and moved on to another song, you know? <laughs> it's like, it was incredible. Um, next up is Piss Up a Rope. Uh, <laughs> I think everyone's favorite song of this record. No comment. <laughs> I never heard of that song. I'd have nothing to do with it. I don't know what you're talking about. I mean, that was what, like, so Dieter, Dieter just had, like, a couple of, the, I mean, he's in the studio, of course, and he's, like, contributing, but he only had to really work for, what, two tracks and, like, one guitar solo? Yeah. Right? And this was, this was, how, let me, I want to guess, Dieter got this first take, nailed it. Um. Wow, yeah. Uh, he did, and but he was more involved in that. I mean, the thing is, we would gather around with the musicians and play the demos while they're charting them out and everything. And and, uh, and um, you know, Mickey was very involved, very involved in of this course, record. Yeah. You know, we we had a shared vision on this thing. We you know it was we really kind of co-produced it. You know, the three of us in that sense. Um, I knew all the I knew how to book the time and get all the people there and inspire the musicians to be you know the, you know everything else. Um, but it was really a shared vision. So Mickey was definitely involved more than just waiting to sing his two songs. I mean, that's not, uh, that wouldn't, that would not be an accurate picture. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And yeah, let's, let's clear up that room. that's, that's not what he did. Internet. How dare you say that? No, uh, no, <laughs> yeah. no, no. Mickey, Mickey is a, a very deep mu- musical person and was, uh, he was connecting constantly, you know, with everyone on this. And, um, that song, what I remember most about that song is that Pete Wade did a guitar solo. Actually, it was a six-string bass solo. And it was cool. It was really good, you know. And uh, after they all left, uh, we're sitting around listening to it. And we start coming to the conclusion that it's too polite for the song. Mm-hmm. And Mickey says, uh, wait one second. He goes out to his rental car and comes back in with a ring modulator, you know. And I'm like... Okay, do you like carry this with you everywhere you go? <laughs> Why is there a ring modulator in your rental car? <laughs> and he plugs it in, and, and we we ran that six string bass solo through this device, you know, like a Mooger Fuger ring modulator, like electro harmonics uh, stomp box, and Mickey starts twiddling the dials, and that's why that solo in that song is so bizarre. Yeah. It's like it's like somebody described it as a uh, like a, a violin being played through uh, like a, like an amp that's too loud. 
It's just like this, this screeching, screeching solo. It was so good. Yeah, and there's, there's also some pitch stuff happening, too, that where Mickey was kind of going, you know, every now and then, like grabbing a dial and moving it. And it was a brilliant move. And I, I wasn't sure what, it, what was about to happen. So Mickey sold me. The minute I heard it come back through the speakers, I'm like, wow, you know, wow, that's great. Yeah. And, uh, um, and we're all singing I, on that too. I'm, uh, I'm singing on that song and the, on the, in the gang vocals there. And uh, um, that song will never die. So many people love that song. <laughs> so many people. That's the song. That's the song that brought David Duchovny and Taya Leone together as a couple. What? Did you, yeah, did you know that? And guess who introduced the song to the other one? Taya Leone was like, hey, David, you need to hear this song called Piss Up a Rope. And that is the song that brought that power couple together. Wow. Um, Isn't that insane? I, um, I, wow. <laughs> I did not know that. <laughs> that's, yeah. a, that's a very strange fact. Uh, and the, the other crazy fact about this record is that it is... Perhaps the first country record to have a parental advisory sticker. Is that true? That's probably true, yeah. I can't imagine that's uh sweet. Yeah, that's probably true, yeah. And and and, and right rightfully so. <laughs> yeah. Deserve Tipper Gore. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um I don't want to leave you on the farm. That is what do we remember about that one? Uh well uh Mickey's playing lead on it. A beautiful solo. Um, what I remember about that is after, I don't remember much about it because everyone, everyone just plays so well. Buddy Spiker on fiddle on that. Beautiful, uh, beautiful work on that. Buddy Spiker's another one of those guys. If you Google him, you'll be like, what? You know, Porter Wagner, you know, it, it goes on and on and on who these guys played yeah. with. But what I remember about that is that we played the record for Claude Coleman, Ween's drummer. And when that song was on, he goes, you know what? This sounds like it should be sung by Ringo Starr. <laughs> it does. <laughs> it, it, and it really does. It sounds like if, you know, Ringo should be singing that song. <laughs> bop, bop, bop. Oh, it's a one. Yeah, totally. <laughs> it totally works. You know, it was a, it was a, a, a pretty good observation. Uh, and then uh, next track, Pretty Girl, uh, which this is like the sleeper hit off this record. This is this this like screams country. This this song I've seen multiple people cover this. It's like the it's such a great fucking song. What I love about that song is that they invented a phrase on town. I've never heard anyone on town. I've never heard anyone. So I'm, I'm going on town. I've never heard that before or since. Yeah. And you don't question it. It's like, yeah, that's what yeah. that dude would say, you know. That, that, that song. Yeah, that's so true. And it is a bizarre phrase that I just accepted as, yeah, this is a real thing. Yeah, they invented they invented a phrase with that one. Um, and I say it now, like if somebody goes, you know, what are you doing? I said, well, I'm getting ready to go on town. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and they always go, on town? I go, oh, never mind. It's a, it's a you never mind. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then uh, followed up by uh, Powder Blue, um, which is uh, a very, a very uh, slow song. 
And then at the end, they start introducing all the players in the record. And then it ends with uh, Muhammad Ali. And I'm glad to say that my version of the record had the actual Muhammad Ali quote uh, in full. Um, and I think that's a collector's piece now. It probably is, yeah. It probably is. The, uh, the demo had that on it. And um, when, uh, when we cut the, you know, the, the album version... Mickey had that cassette with him and said, I, I really want to fly this in at the end. And I said, okay. I said, you know, you're going to have to run this by Electra's legal department. You know, and he goes, no, we're not. And I go, no, I think you probably are. And he goes, eh, well, let's do it anyway. I said, okay. I said, well, we might want to, you know, mix an alternate version of this without that. And Mickey was so convinced that it wouldn't be a problem. <laughs> <laughs> and he convinced me. I'm like, well, I mean, you know, well, you must know what you're talking about. Cool. Let's do it. Let's fly it in. And we flew that thing in, and uh, it made it through the first pressing. And I was thinking, wow, Mickey was right, you know. And then, <laughs> all of a sudden, I start getting phone calls from people saying, I just bought this Ween record, and Powder Blue ends way too abruptly. What's up with that? And yeah. I go, what are you talking about? And so I, I went out and bought a new copy and listened to it. I was like, oh, that's a pretty crazy way to fix that problem. <laughs> yeah. But it's... Yeah, I mean, why wouldn't Electra just pay for the rights? It was probably like an absurd price from like the Muhammad Ali, uh, you know, estate or whatever for that. Yeah, he was still alive at the, he was still alive at the time. I think they might have ran it by him. And he said, no, I don't know. Um, <laughs> but um, I... I loved it, you know. I loved where Mickey placed it. I really loved it. Yeah, it's like it's like a solid joke in the middle of that record too. It's like it's like, it's like I'm I'm a comedian. All of us here on the podcast are comedians. It's like, yep, that is a, what we call an A plus joke. Nailed it. Set up. Punch. Done. Yep. Especially and now, ladies and gentlemen, um, and there's a pause. Muhammad Ali. <laughs> Muhammad Ali. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, it's, yeah. It's perfect. But the um, but the other thing about that uh, record is the Jordanaires. That's the uh, they're on that song. And um, now the Jordanaires were uh, they they would come in at the end of the day because um, having a quartet and a full band and a lead singer cutting a track was just too much. Yeah. You know, too much for the studio as far as miking and placement and everything. So. They came in, and uh, we chose those two songs for them to sing on. And when we paid, played uh, Powder Blue, the bass singer, Ray Walker, who is uh, one of the guys who invented the number system, the Nashville number system, mm-hmm. playing that, the, 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 the Jordanaires, I figured, let them do what they do and stay out of their way because we wanted, we wanted them to be the Jordanaires, not our version of what we would like them to be. So they would listen to the song, be making notes, and kind of you know gather around a music stand, four guys, um, kind of whispering to each other and talking and trying a few things out and everything. And then, and then they would come up with their arrangement. Well, when we were listening to Powder Blue, every time Aaron sings Powder Blue and it hits that minor chord, um, Ray Walker would go... <laughs> We're like, what? What? And he goes, you you need a bomb right there. You need you need a bomb to go off right there. 
And we were like, wow, you're, you're weirder than we are. <laughs> and, he, and he had this, like, convincing, crazy look in his eye when he, when he kept saying it, you know. And uh, so that, that's my, my memory of recording that song is, is the bass singer um, kind of outdoing us a little bit. <laughs> you, you, maybe I would love to hear a version with the bomb in. Yeah, it's you know, kind of like the boxer, you know, by Simon and Garfunkel. <laughs> I did I, you know, powder blue, <laughs> you know. Yeah, we maybe maybe we should have taken his advice. Yeah. <laughs> um, the next track is the. Um, it's Mr. Richard Smoker. There's there's nothing else you could say about it. Uh, what was the reaction uh, that song at the time? Well, that's the song that caused Danny Davis to never call me back. Um, yeah. It's uh, the reaction. Actually, the reaction was uh, music, musical. Um, Charlie McCoy plays a million instruments. And he heard that song and said, oh, boy, you know what you need on this? You need tuba and you need a clarinet and you need a this and, and that. And. You know, he plays a lot of instruments. He didn't play clarinet. We brought in another guy in that Charlie recommended. But Charlie's, I don't know how many instruments he's playing on that song, but he he fell in love with that song. He stayed late to do all these overdubs on that song because he just loved the chord changes. And and also the way the band really, really swings that song. You know, at one point the bass starts walking and it really starts really becoming like a classic kind of, Almost, I don't know, like Dixieland jazz or something, you know? Mm-hmm. And so musically, when I listen to that song, my memory of that song has less to do with the lyrics. I know the lyrics are what they are, and they're out of control, you know? And uh, and the, the song is notorious for the lyrics, but because I was there at the creation, I guess what I remember is Charlie McCoy being like a little kid, just loving that song and wanting to make it as good as he could. Well, it's, it's, it's kind of like an amazing song. I mean, it is, musically, it's a phenomenal song. It's, it's, it's always fun to hear live. I mean, there's a lot going on in the song. And it's like, you know, just like we were talking before about, you know, Ween kind of walks the line. It's like, there's this, you know, this fucking, uh, it, it sounds difficult to play. It sounds like musically interesting. And, and then on the flip side of it, it's got, you know, it's like dirty and raunchy, and, uh, you know, it's got, it's got both sides of the coin. And I think this song, you know, this, this is the roadblock for, you know, I think definitely the critics when this record came out. Um, this is the one people were really fixated on. Uh, and I think it gets a, a bum rap. It seems to be, you know, 1996, you know, that, these jokes were, were, were fine in 1996. They were, they were part of the, the culture. Is, yeah, I mean, it's obviously politically incorrect. Uh, <laughs> yeah, totally. <laughs> and so, and, you know, so is piss up a rope, you know. Uh, the um, uh, What's great about it, though, is those chord changes, okay? Uh, and, and also another song, um, uh, what is that song called that Ween did later on? Uh, that it, um, uh, oh, you, hey, you oh, hum it and I'll tell you what the title uh, is. Hey There, uh, Fancy Pants? Oh, yeah. Okay. That's it. Those chords are, are advanced chord sequences. You know, that's not like a rock dude. You know, that's like 
those chord changes are legitimate. And how oh, yeah. they know those chords is still a mystery to me because I've worked with those guys. And Aaron, by the way, is a really great bass player. He's a really great bass oh. player, but he doesn't know the names of the notes. <laughs> and, and I'm not sure if Mickey knows when he's flying around. Like, there's some jazz chords on there, traditional stuff that actually lifts the melody where it's supposed to go. These, you know, not just like random jazz chords. They're the ones that Django Reinhardt would use, right? right? To bolster a melody. And Mickey knows that stuff, but he ain't saying where he got it from right. and he may not even know where he got it from but it's it's those guys are channeling i mean i've you know i've said it before and it really i think it bears repeating you know they're channeling there there's something going on those guys have an antenna it's like it's it's meant to be yeah they have an antenna or there or something going on where there's stuff out there in the air and it just comes right through them and it comes out and i don't know if they remember how they wrote anything i don't know if they're thinking when they write it doesn't seem like they are it seems like it just appears and they have another song in their catalog <laughs> yeah. you know and it could be you know don't sweat it or it could be you know don't get clo- too close to my fantasy or mr richard smoker or one of these kind of jazzy tunes you know right you don't know and i, I they're an encyclopedia and i can't figure out how they know this stuff they know they it's inside them and i don't i don't get it they're a mystery to me. Well, I, I think I think the next song is a uh, is basically a Merle Haggard song. Uh, help me scrape the mucus off my brain. Yeah, that sounds suspiciously like if we make it through December. Yeah, totally, hundred percent. I just like I listened to it today to like just double check, and it's like I could sing if <laughs> help me scrape the mucus off my brain uh, directly from that. Do you think that's like? Uh, like a direct inspiration? Do you think they were listening? What were they listening to like around this time? Do you know? Well, I mean, they're um, what a funny. Th- okay, here's a funny, a funny story. Um, so they're gonna they're gonna make a uh, country album, and we're gonna meet up in Nashville. I flew in from L.A. They drove down from uh, from New Hope, and they told me they're all they're listening to is like this Roger Miller box set. That's uh, all they've been listening to. And uh, when they pull up, they're not listening to that. They're listening to a Teddy Pendergrass record. (laughs) Really loud. (laughs) Which is about as far from country music as you can get. Yeah. And I'm like, you got, you got, you got. And they're like, dude, we're ready. And I'm like, okay. (laughs) Yeah, I'm just picturing... The door opens. They're in sunglasses, smoke pouring out of the van. Teddy Pendergrass. Yeah, Teddy. We're ready. Yeah, yeah, we're ready. <laughs> and the uh, to assume that they were prepa- they actually prepared for this in a linear way is is very naive. Uh, yeah, they are who they are, and it's all happening at once. You know, that's so true. Now, and and our next track, um, you were the fool. Now, Ben, how did you not know that this was the single? Uh, well, you wanted the single. You wanted Japanese Cowboy, but they they gave you one of the most beautiful songs of all time. To me, it's a deep album track. Um, like in the '70s, that would be a deep album track. You know, uh, 
Mm-hmm. Uh, if you're thinking about, you know, I don't know who you're thinking of, uh, you know, whether it's the Eagles or Pure Prairie League or Poco or, you know, one of those country rock bands. Uh, back in the day, you would go with the up-tempo tune, you know, for your first single. Oh, true. It would be the second single, yeah. for sure. You Were the Fool <clears throat> is the most beautiful song on that record, I think. Um, and what's great about it is there's two things going on there. Buddy Harmon, the drummer, who um, has seen it all, right? That guy played on a zillion records and has contributed some incredible stuff to some classic, iconic records. Mm. He hears us running this song down, like the, you know, like we're listening to the demo, and then the, then the guitar player starts playing that lick, and he asks me, he says, "Do you mind? Do you mind if I play with my hands instead of sticks?" Or brushes, and I said, "Well, let me hear what it sounds like." And he started doing that thing, and he played that whole part with his hands, oh. sitting back there behind the kit. And Buddy Harmon was amazing. He was the first person I ever met that actually had um, a prescription for medical marijuana because he had glaucoma, and mm-hmm. he was losing his eyesight. And uh, so, you know, he became a hero to us right away. Of course, you know, <laughs> I mean. You, you know, 1996, medical marijuana, that was uh, a real rare thing. Yeah, that's, uh, that's way ahead of the curve. Yeah. And also the bass on that is this guy, Kip Paxton, I think his name is, uh, played bass that day. We had three different bass players on that record, I believe. Charlie McCoy played bass and um, Bob Ray. Bob, and I'm looking at Bob Ray. Bob Ray and... Uh, Kip Paxton, is that the name? Do you have it written down somewhere? Or Yep, that's it. Yeah, Kip Paxton. Yep. Yeah. And Kip was a very interesting guy. He had a long beard and looked like, you know, like he was living in the woods or something. And and he didn't he didn't say a single word. Um he came in, he was he was like a like I don't know, like a very strange existential loner, you know, almost I don't know, just a really odd aura coming from him. <laughs> like mountain people. Yeah, and he heard that song, and he started, and he played that bass line, and it was so good that when we mixed the record, we just kept pushing that bass up. You know, we wanted it to sort of be the lead instrument. You know, and uh, like 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 on Dead Records, you know, the bass is very loud on right. on, on a lot of Grateful Dead records. The bass is really up there because what he's doing is you know, like counter melody stuff that's too interesting not to have audible in a big way. Oh, wait, the- I, lo- I love that we're building up the, the mystery of Kip Paxton. Yeah. Like, as if, like, when, when, it, when he was done with the track, he just disappeared. And, like, <laughs> his spirit flew back into the, the, you know, the Blue Hill Mountains. Or <laughs> and that, it's freaking great. Now I'm starting to wonder. <laughs> where, is, where is he? Was he even there? Yeah, exactly. What, <laughs> Who is maybe, he? M- maybe he, he wasn't there. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> I'm going I'm to rearrange the letters in his name to see if I can figure out who he really was. He was sending us a message. Yeah, he's... Um, and our last song on the track, Ben, uh, Fluffy. Masterpiece. What, what was... Master, yeah, a masterpiece. It is a masterpiece. <laughs> it is. Um, you know, it's, I don't, it's, it's a song about a dog. I mean, it sounds like a, like a real... Like, that's the thing on this record. Everything sounds like a real country song. And they are real country songs. Well, this one, I mean, um, uh, the character that 
Aaron is inhabiting <laughs> is... Yeah, what is that like to witness? Well, he never gets off the porch. Yeah. All the porch. Ne- never gets off the porch. Penny gets off the porch and takes the dog out for a walk, but, you know, the singer does not. He just is on the porch. And um, that's, the, that's the brilliance of that song. You know, Penny is actually the active character in that song. <laughs> and, and who is Penny? Um, what's great about that song, when we cut that song, um, I could never count out how the chord changes under the vocal. You know, there's that little descending line that happens. It's the time signature on that. It still confuses me. And we played the demo, which was just Aaron with a guitar. And uh, the musicians and Charlie McCoy, they're all gathered around, and Charlie's writing out the, the number charts for it to hand out to everybody. And um, at one point, I'm watching this, and you have these really concentrated looks on all these session players' faces. They're really serious, because it is an odd time signature the way that changes. So they're all gathered around and they're, you know, and they're deciding what the arrangement's going to be like. And they all look so serious. And I'm thinking, this is the weirdest song. (laughs) 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 Fluffy. I mean, these guys are so serious about fluffy right now. This might be the greatest moment of my career to be in, to be watching this happen. Like, they were really serious about getting Fluffy right, you know? Really getting it right. And, of course... Just a room full of legends. And then when they leave, we just slow the track down anyway and mess it up. Yeah, right. (laughs) They had no idea it was going to be sabotaged the minute they left, you know? (laughs) But the uh, the guitar solo, that's Aaron, uh, double-tracked. He's playing harmony with himself. And uh, that was a great... That was really a great moment. Um, Aaron's a better guitar player than most people recognize because Mickey's so amazing, you know, that he overshadows him. But Aaron can really play. And um, I'm not sure if he knows what the names of the notes are, but, boy, (laughs) you know, the parts he comes up with are always what the song needs, you know. Uh, Some of the tastiest licks have come from his guitar. Yeah. Or tasters, as as they call them. Yeah. Ben, like, we didn't even get to touch on Marvelous Clouds, the other record that you produced. Um, was this fun for you? Would you like to come back again at some point in the future and talk about Marvelous Clouds? Sure. Yeah. I love that. I love that record. I love that record. So do, so do I. That That is a record that has grown on me so much over the last, like, four or five years. And I know there's probably a thousand stories about that. Let me let me just ask you one question. Sure. Uh, and then we'll we'll this will be the cliffhanger for when we have you back. What there was a lot going on with Gene at the time that that record was being recorded. Um, and what what was the biggest difference between working with Aaron Freeman versus working with Aaron and Mickey, like process wise? Hmm. Uh, that's a hard question to answer. Let me. I, no, you know. Nothing really comes to mind that it would. Um, uh, I, the only thing I would say is is that that record 
is Aaron singing in his real voice for every song, yeah. which you never get on a Ween album. He has many characters that inhabit him, you know. Uh, part of his writing process, I, I think, is he goes into character and comes out. So when he sings Your Party, he's using that voice or uh, you're just an object, right. you're just an object to me. That's, you know, these are all different voices. He, uh, right. he, he has an arsenal of like 28 different voices he can use, right? And on Marvelous Clouds, well, I'm, I'm holding you. Actually, the, you know, on, on, on 12 Golden Crates, that's his real voice. Beautiful. Yeah, it's, it feels pretty honest. Beautiful, beautiful yeah. voice. Uh, really a beautiful, clear, really great, natural, uh, authentic voice, you know. And uh, for the, so for the whole album of Marvelous Clouds, uh, he never goes into a British accent. Right. <laughs> Which, he's, he's not playing a, a secret serial killer who's singing a song. Right. He's Aaron right. through that entire record. And that was the idea. And that's about it. And did you, was there, was there any rumblings when, when you were recording that it, because, I mean, that album came out and then they announced, or he announced that, that Ween was over. I mean, he was. I I, I, mean, uh, I what always was made, that. What was that like for you? During that period, I made it the point not to know anything about what was going on. Um, I, yeah, I didn't want to be. Uh, I didn't even want to know because uh, I. It was. I, I knew that there was trouble, and I didn't. I didn't want to know the details. So I. Uh, I worked with Aaron on that record, and um, we didn't talk about any of that stuff. So I. I don't know if there were any rumblings. I like. Honestly, don't know. There might have been, but um, I, I right. It was just kind of the business of making that record and you know, getting it done. Well, you know, for me, it's it and and you know when I'm working, you know, music for me is the only thing happening when you're working on music. Nothing else exists, you know. And Aaron, Aaron is very much that way, and Mickey as well. So. Um, you know, we were we were in a land of melody and lyrics and arrangements and stuff, and that's pretty much all we talked about. Yeah, I can't I can't wait to talk to you more about that record and learn learn more about you know Rod McEwen and and the whole the whole process of that record. And again, I would love to have you back. Let's do it in a few months, uh, Ben. This has been a real treat. Thank you for being so open and 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 sharing all of this with us. Uh, you're a fucking master. You're welcome. Uh, I'm a huge Ween fan, as you can tell, you know, uh, I, I, yes, I've worked with him, but I'm, I really, really am a fan, you know, <laughs> at the same time, or even maybe more so. I love that band. I love, I, I just, I mean, I love every piece of music they ever did. Do you think there's going to be more records? What do you think? It's hard to say. Um, yeah. It's hard to say. I, I don't know. Um, they have such a huge catalog that, um, it's you know sort of like there there's some artists like Miles Davis or something where did Miles ever really need to make a new record after a certain point <laughs> yeah. or was it just was it just awesome to be in the same room with him when he was on stage and and playing you know the old stuff you know uh, I don't know I don't know Thank you so much for your time Ben You're welcome
This podcast is in the loop, the Legion of Osiris podcasts. Osiris is creating a community that connects people like you with live experiences and podcasts about artists and topics you love. Get in the loop at OsirisPod.com.